So he confessed to me, he said, I'm not going to say this publicly because it's a little too controversial, but uh, that I have to believe that there is some sort of primate, we're calling Bigfoot, running around. And he said, we have had 25 reports in the last few months. 25 in the last few months? <laughs> from the south end of the winds of this kind of a sighting. Uh, some of them were actual sightings, some they didn't really see. It could have been a bear, they saw something, it was dark, but they had things thrown at them. Uh -huh. And some of them had also heard screams in the night. Hey, 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 how's it going? Welcome to Deerlander, a purely Land Diego podcast. I am your host today, Jordan. Unfortunately, Amara is not going to be joining us. Um, she has a reading for a play. But we have two very special guests, um, Dr. Jeff Meldrum and John Myazinski. Thank you guys so much for being on the podcast. I appreciate you guys coming out. Sure. Pleasure. <clears throat> I guess right off the bat, when we started Deerlander last year, I was really really excited and I had, uh, heard a couple stories about about you John and uh, I had also heard that you lived out in Atlantic City and I wasn't exactly sure how to reach you and so today at the Wyoming Expo I was like having a great conversation with you Jeff and it was so cool that, that you were there too and that this happened you know by happenstance um, <laughs> so yeah I just appreciate your guys time and everything mm -hmm. I guess to start out could we could we talk about um, how you guys met up and kind of linked up? Sure. You want to uh, take it, yeah? Sure, I'll start anyway. It, it was really quite interesting. I, I was at a point uh, where I was having a change of heart about the approach uh, to this subject. One of my predecessors, Dr. Krantz, had, uh, after a very frustrating career uh, addressing this topic, had concluded that the only way to resolve it uh, once and for all was to was through the <clears throat> by means of a lethal collection of a specimen to to kill one, and after much mental gymnastics and and self rationalization, I uh, adopted that same stance, and uh, and it's it's funny it's almost silly but uh, quite literally I took my kids uh, one afternoon to a matinee of uh, Disney's Tarzan. Mm -hmm. And there were these two characters in that movie that really struck me. One was Clayton, the expedition leader, who shot at everything that moved. Uh -huh. uh, I mean, in fact, so much so that Tarzan uh, named Clayton. <laughs> and then on the opposite spectrum was the doting professor, who in the end was willing to give up his career and his life at, at home in order to live with and study these magnificent creatures. And, yeah. Uh, and there was literally this moment in the theater when this little imp on my shoulder whispers in my ear and said, well, Jeff, which of these two characters is most similar to you right now? And, and it clicked, you know, that all that rationalization went out the window. And, and I asked myself, you know, how am I justifying this approach to a scientific question? Um, you know, I'm, I don't have to prove this to anyone. And I'm, I'm ultimately in this to experience this myself and come to realization and then further the, the ultimate uh, resolution of the question. And, I, and I, I tell that little story because it was quite interesting because literally a week or a week and a half after that, 
uh, a graduate student in my department said to me, you really need to meet this John Mianzinski. I can't remember what her interaction with you was, but she said, you need to meet John Mianzinski. He actually did an interview for National Geographic and he had this experience in the Wind Rivers and, and he said, you two would really work together well. And so shortly thereafter, uh, John was in town. I think you were probably visiting that uh, veterinarian friend acquaintance. Oh, Eric. Yeah. yeah. And was this in, in Pocatello? In Pocatello. Okay. And so he calls me up and we arrange a meeting. He comes to my office. Now, had I been of the other mindset of lethal collection, I'm sure John probably wouldn't have given me the time of day after that meeting. But, uh, but it, it, it really changed, you know, my, my attitude and my stance. And we seem to hit it off really well. And, uh, and uh, we've been working out in the field. Wow, it's been two decades at least, uh, yeah. off and on as, as opportunity presents. But uh, it's been a great collaboration. I've learned so much from him and hopefully been of some benefit, mutual benefit. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> it's been a wonderful scientific relationship and a friendship. Yeah, sure. Oh, absolutely. On so many levels. And I, I think the high point for me on that meeting, that time we met, is I went to Jeff's lab, which is impressive. He's got a lot of plaster casts, a lot of good evidence. It's physical evidence. Uh, the existence of this primate. And we sat down and talked about what, where is he, you know, the vector he rides on and the one I ride on and where they could converge. I remember we discussed where that could converge. And it converges over this one plant where uh, we were talking about most of my work had to do with habitat biology for wildlife, mm. large game animals, and elk and antelope and mountain sheep. And the way you study them is you look at what foods they have in the wild and where they're going to go at certain times of the year, and it's called seasonality of movement. And was there any pattern we could identify with Sasquatch? Well, I've been looking locally in the wind rivers and uh, reporting, uh, documenting sightings the U.S. Forest Service actually asked me to do that in 1972 and there were a lot of sightings in this area. Mm -hmm. And interview the people, document where, and see if you could find any kind of physical evidence. And did you say, this was in the 70s at the time yeah. in the Wind Rivers? Yeah, okay. uh, when I started being interested in it. And uh, so I was accumulating information on where they were found and what they would be there for. Why would they be in this particular drainage in September mm -hmm. any given year? And was it consistent that drainage had sightings every year but only in September? There must have been a food source there then. In, in every year in the 70s in this drainage there was certain, there were certain sightings? Certain areas, and I'm, I'm using an example of one drainage, oh, but there okay. were certain areas where you get repetitive sightings but only after the first frost, and that's important. I spent a good deal of time working with grizzly bears. And after it freezes, after the air temperature gets down in the high 20s, berries convert from higher starch and inulin and complex carbohydrates into sugar. So they're more appealing to bears. They go after them. Okay. A lot of the anecdotal evidence on Bigfoot <coughs> indicated that they were omnivores like bears. You know, they were seen eating meat and they were seen around vegetation they were eating according to anecdotal reports. So if they're similar to bears you'd expect that in the fall of the year when they have to put on a lot of weight to get through the winter, whether they get through the winter by reducing their metabolism or finding things to eat 
without reducing their uh, metabolism or hibernating, all of these animals have to stock up on uh, protein, fat, and carbohydrates mm -hmm. in the fall of the year. It's a critical time. So what I have noticed is that, that they uh, seem to go after one plant that uh, locally is uh, called thorn apple. And um, they would uh, show up eating the berries of this shrub. And that was in this local area. And, you know, Jeff said, well, um, he had all these sightings from his area. Idaho, Oregon, Washington, mm. that he'd accumulated as an anthropologist from that standpoint of collecting data on what people are seeing and what it looks like, what their tracks are like. So he had that, and we kind of, uh, just to shorten the story, <clears throat> looked at a big map of where sightings were in an area I had never worked in, where Jeff worked. And then we overlaid that with a vegetation map to show where this one plant was that they seemed to like the berries of in Wyoming. Mm -hmm. And sure enough, we had a correlation where there was sightings in the season when those berries are frost, frosted, therefore containing more sugar, would appeal to an omnivore. The sightings were there at that time of year, and that's a seasonality justification for a real animal that's an omnivore. So that's like the first step of combining mm. Jeff's um, background and, and collection of data and mine so that we could actually use our separate disciplines to uh, maybe do research together. Sure. Yeah, yeah because um, Jeff, you were saying that your background is in anthropology and yours is in um, wildlife well, biology. Yes. Mm -hmm. yeah. Habitat work. I guess... Okay, so yeah, next steps. I'm sorry, I just kind of want to let you guys, yeah, go for it. Um, sure. Yeah, it was stunning. I mean, uh, I had, uh, once he had um, explained to me the, the potential significance of this hawthorn, um, I... Which is also called thorn apple. Thorn apple, oh, yes. Okay. Hawthorn or thorn apple, yeah. Um, uh, we had a satellite geographic information systems lab, a GIS lab, and one of the technicians was very intrigued with my preoccupation with this topic. And so he came down to my office one time and introduced himself. He said, hey, if there's ever anything I can do. And I said, well, as a matter of fact, I just had this conversation about Hawthorne. And you know, you, would, you wouldn't know uh, without some information, what's the distribution? How ubiquitous is it across the landscape? I said, can you give me a coverage map of Idaho just with one particular species of plant? He said, oh, sure, no problem. What, what are you interested in? I told him. And uh, Critagus, I think. Critagus, yeah. And so he comes back just a few minutes later with this printout of the map. And boom, it's not ubiquitous. It's at certain elevations in these drainages along the Snake River Plain. And the, those are the areas that we most frequently have late fall, early winter sightings. Uh, as, as infrequent as we have them in southern Idaho. But there they were, the correlation was there. And then, to top it off, at, on one of his visits, one of his acquaintances is a, uh, I guess we're okay to talk about this since you said his name already, but the, a veterinarian in town, he's a, a professional mm -hmm. who had a sighting not far outside of Pocatello in, in the late, well, it was early winter, I guess, there was snow on the ground. Yeah. Um, but he was out walking his dog on a gated road and uh, to make a long story short, he saw something, which at first he thought was just someone wearing a, like a snowmobile jumpsuit, just a uniform color from head to toe. But the dog's behavior suggested otherwise. And as soon as the dog started barking, this figure stops 
bolt, you know, and it's it's at this time quite distant. I got the impression, you know, 200 yards or so. Okay. Uh, but so you could just see the figure, you know, but the figure turned and went right up the hill and over the ridge through three feet of snow. And, uh, you know, he said it would have taken him <laughs> most of the afternoon to get to the top. This thing was up and over in 10 minutes. How tall was it, or how? Well, he had not a really good gauge of of, of scale, and when we uh, when he got there, because the snow was fairly light and powdery, there was just a, a you know bulldozed trail. Uh, it wasn't good, clear individual footprints. Mm -hmm. But we went up to the site to sort of uh, investigate the the location, and we're we're standing there. He said, "Okay, right here is where it was standing. It turned and went up the ridge and over there." And I said, "John." Uh, over right behind us down in the draw that whole drainage was thick with hawthorn berries no way so and they, they are actually holding the hawthorn berries at the time so uh it was that was really interesting and uh you know that's not obviously as i said it's not ubiquitous it's at particular elevations in particularly in the, in the rocky mountains but you know in the pacific northwest it might be huckleberries that's the principal fruit and there's there's a different you know seasonality to the availability of resources and to the to the the need to estivate or hibernate so yeah um you know you have to look at each habitat as its own unique set of circumstances but uh but you look for those same components uh providing the basic dietary requirements of sugars carbohydrates fats and proteins and you know? bioflavonoids which yeah. i am going yeah you know slowly uh, coming to the conclusion that the purple colored fruits but it's uh the ones that that have this class of <coughs> uh, catechin compounds that are bioflavonoids are very healthy for the cardiovascular system and mm. animals seem to like them, bears like them. This animal seems to be sighted around, especially hawthorn, but some of the other uh, purple colored fruits that are high in this type of nutrient, probably necessary to, to either hibernate or get through the winter for cardiovascular health when nutrition is at a minimum. You know, good nutrition is not daily available. It may not be available at all in terms of hibernation, which I think they probably do in northern climates, these Sasquatch animals. So what, over time, since what we're giving you is early examples of when we first got together, but since then we've seen this repetitively, that the sightings after the first freeze are especially concentrated around hawthorn and similar berries with those kind of bioflavonoid contents. I see. So does that mean during this time of the year, I assume, is this all like September when that first freeze starts to happen? Generally, September or early October. Yeah. Are y'all um, gearing up and kind of preparing to go in the field like every year? Um, and what does that look like? Well, yeah, unfortunately, as, as an academic, my, my uh, commitment is to a, a school year curriculum. So mm -hmm. last week of August, school starts. And so my field season is curtailed largely then. So we, I don't, haven't had the luxury of, of lengthy field operations once school has started. You know, I can take long weekends and uh, I've managed to, over the years, get my teaching load uh, uh, front-ended in the week so I can take long weekends and still do some field work but but no it hasn't really worked out that we can do a lot of late season 
operations. So, but we have done quite some field trips together. Yeah, when we can get away, and sometimes when there's funding, sometimes when there's not funding. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. But uh, we do this because we believe in it. Is it a fascinating scientific interest? Yeah. Rather than something that's a job. We have gone on expeditions to follow up on areas where there have been recent sightings. Mm -hmm. Tried to lure them in using uh, baits that might attract a primate like that uh, with camera traps. Not with the intention of killing, but with the in intention of gathering hair samples or a photograph. Photographs never worked, of course, <laughs> no. anybody else. No. Particularly, although there is a, a video, uh, a movie footage that Jeff has worked on quite a lot, the stabilized Patterson film, which shows some fascinating anatomical uh, features, which of interest to Jeff because he's an anatomist, mm -hmm. he teaches anatomy. <laughs> yeah. So he is tuned into things like dorsiflexion with the toes when this mm -hmm. animal walks. It would not be something you would fake or think about faking in <laughs> 1967 with right. Patterson film. So maybe Jeff can talk about the Patterson yeah, yeah. film and how that's a a crucial part of, of the evidence. It really is. I mean, it still stands as by far the, the best photographic evidence that we have. And, and it just seems with each uh, assault by the critics and response by the advocates, new technologies become available that allow us to look at it, scrutinize it in even more detail. And, and even more information emerges. It, it holds up under... Uh, under technologies that you know Roger Patterson in 1967 couldn't possibly have imagined um, being available to us today. So uh, yeah, it's it's fascinating to see the uh, the remarkable anatomical detail. And one of the themes that I have emphasized here recently that so impresses me that we've only achieved also with the passage of time is that what has become conventional wisdom in anthropology about certain otherwise odd combinations of traits mm -hmm. are actually anticipated in that film sometimes decades before they are acknowledged and accepted by mainstream science. So for example, one of the first critics, it was, uh, it was shown first in the United States to a team at the Smithsonian, a panel at the Smithsonian, which contained included uh, one primatologist by the name of uh, Dr. John Napier. And he was uh, you know, a very respected anatomist. He was actually a physician as well. And, uh, but he was kind of the father of studies of primate locomotion. So I had a lot of influence on my uh, career as a student and, and an early academic. And mm -hmm. um, he was probably more open-minded on the subject, the proposition of, of, of such a creature existing than anyone else on the panel, but he still, you know, was uh, voted sort of thumbs down on the film. And, but he acknowledged, he, he was so impressed that he later wrote a book about five years later, he published a book on his review of, of the available, some of the available information at the time. And in the book, he made the statement that he really couldn't put his finger on why he had to reject the film, except perhaps that when he looked at it from the waist up, it looked essentially like a gorilla or an ape, but from the waist down, it had the proportions of a human. And he said it was just really inconceivable that such an, a mosaic, such an unexpected combination of traits could exist in nature. Yeah. So it must be hoaxed. Well, 
that book came out in, in 1972 or thereabouts and about 1975 were the public announcements of the discovery of some of the most complete fossil skeletal remains of one of the earliest hominin ancestors, namely Lucy, as she's commonly known, yeah, Australopithecus yeah. afarensis. And so much more complete pelvis than ever before found and, and the knees and the ankles and so forth. And how was it described to the popular press? From the waist up, she essentially looks like a chimpanzee, but from the waist down, she has the limb proportions of a human. Well, wait a minute. That was the <laughs> that was the very linchpin of the argument that Napier made that leveled against the credibility of the film. Now, what if he had waited maybe another five years before his paper had, or his book had been published, and he was aware of this discovery? What we see in the film anticipates exactly what we now understand as the otherwise unusual combinations of traits in these early hominids. And I can just go down the list, you know, the combination of a flat face and short canine teeth, uh, the uh, flexible foot, for example, an archless foot with a non-divergent big toe, and on and on and on, uh, one thing after another that is just... Uh, it, that literally cut against the grain of conventional wisdom in 1967. And yet, now, it's exactly what you see on that uh, screen when you watch that is exactly how we envision, ex with the exception of the tremendous size, mm -hmm. but the adaptation, essentially, otherwise, the combination of traits that you see is exactly what we anticipate, or what, what we now envision, rather, for um, early bipedal hominids. I mean, it fits the bill right to the T. It's just, uh, it's just amazing. So um, this scholar, Napier, once like book is published and then the information with Lucy comes out, has he commented? Has he um, changed his mind in any sort of way? He passed away shortly thereafter. And, you know, I, I, I don't I think he, he did any publication after the book was published. That's, that's a good question and one I should be prepared to answer. And I'll have to look that up, <laughs> those details up. But, uh, yeah, I, I do know that he passed away shortly after his book was published. So he may not have been aware, ever aware, of the subsequent discoveries of the Australopithecines. So, but, yeah, fascinating, fascinating piece of, uh, of evidence. I mean, to suggest that Roger Patterson could have concocted such a thing. I mean, ignoring just all, uh, the whole separate issue of the design uh, of, of such a costume, to fabricate a costume that, that could uh, portray such a, such a thing, just to look at the scientific context is, uh, uh, not only is it uh, inconceivable that, that Roger Patterson could come up with it, but even if he was being coached by someone, Sure. Some anthropologist who just was, you know, having a, you know, on a lark, basically. There wasn't. I mean, why would you choose all these uh, characteristics that were completely counterintuitive if you were trying to portray a, a believable uh, scenario, a believable uh, being on the on the film? So this Patterson video for myself and our listeners, I assume this is um, like the classic Bigfoot. Um, photo and video that we have all seen. Yes. Can you give us a little bit of background on maybe who Patterson was, what he was doing, and how he came across, and how this came to be, and sure. all that? Do you want? To... No, go okay. ahead. Well, R Roger Patterson uh, was a uh, oh, kind of a, kind of a jack of all trades, living in Yakima, Washington. He uh, uh, often described as a rodeo rider, but he had. Uh, you'd probably say today he had ADHD. He uh, 
He just couldn't stay fit, focused on one thing. And he was full of all kinds of inventive ideas. He was always running off to try to patent uh, a new little uh, gadget or gizmo that he'd come up with. And um, so he was a, a clever guy, you know, a smart guy, but just had a trouble um, sticking with a project. He became fascinated with the subject of, of the abominable snowman and of, of Bigfoot, as it was known, um, after reading a paper or an article by Ivan Sanderson, who is known for his interest in all things Fortean, uh, you know, un unusual, anomalous things. And um, Sanderson had, uh, was very interested in, in the search for the Yeti. And then when he got wind of, of stories of Bigfoot, he uh, promoted those in, in his publications. And these were publications in, in popular magazines, men's magazines like Saga or Argosy or True. Um, Roger had, uh, had uh, wanted to find, he wanted to be the man who discovered Bigfoot. So he had made contacts with some of the people who lived down in Northern California. And one of those, Al Hodgson in, of Willow Creek, who ran the uh, sort of local mercantile, tipped Roger off about the discovery of some footprints that had been found, a lo exceptionally long line. One of the best documented and studied, photographed and cast uh, sets of footprints that, uh, that have ever uh, been uh, described. And uh, they were studied extensively by John Green and Rene DeHinden, a couple of uh, investigators of that era. And uh, so Roger wanted to go down. Uh, but he needed some help. He needed some assistance. And uh, Bob Gimlin was a friend of his, a little more stable individual, you might say, I guess. And uh, so he provided the vehicle and the horses and so forth and the wherewithal to get down there and, and was intrigued by the stories that Roger was sharing with him. And uh, they were down there to follow up. It had been about three weeks since the footprints had been discovered. Unfortunately, the rains had pretty much obliterated them, but they, they did see a few prints and they started uh, uh, scouring the roads. Uh, they, they'd drive the roads at night after the logging trucks were, were um, uh, away, were done. They would ride horseback up and down the creek bottoms. After about two weeks, they decided to go back up one particular uh, draw, which was Bluff Creek. And uh, as they rounded um, uh, a big crow's nest, a big uh, root wad of a, of a downed tree. There was a lot of debris because this um, drainage had been scoured by a seasonal flooding the previous year. I mean, I literally scoured down to the sandbars, which was for fortunate because they had this unobstructed line of sight down this sandbar. Mm -hmm. And as they came around this crow's nest, uh, suddenly the horses became aware of something standing just the opposite side of the creek. And the horses reared and... Uh, Roger's horse was young and inexperienced and fell over on its side, stumbled and fell on its side. Roger extricated himself and grabbed the camera out of the saddlebag and went running across the creek yelling, uh, cover me. So Bob, the pack horse that Bob was leading, had, had pulled and bolted away. And so uh, Bob rode across the creek, dismounted, uh, pulling his .30-06 out of his uh, scabbard. But they had agreed they wouldn't shoot it, anything they, they wouldn't shoot anything they encountered unless they felt their life was immediately in peril. So anyway, that's, and then you see what you see. You, Roger's running across the creek, the camera is gyrating with each step. The image is just all over the place and every once in a while you catch a glimpse of this dark shadowy figure moving away at, at, at a rapid pace, retreating away from the men. And uh, Roger 
it, it, it veered up around this big debris pile, which Roger approached, and uh, he actually, because of the elevation of the sandbar from the creek bed, as he was running, looking through just this little viewfinder with one eye closed, he ran right into that sandbar, which dropped him to his knees. Thankfully, because then the camera was stabilized. He was down and he held the camera still and pan. And that's where you see this iconic uh, central portion of the clip. 60 seconds of film where it's, it's walking more broadside and, and turns and looks back at him. With the but, arms kind of waving. And, yeah, the arms yeah. are swinging. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a very deliberate stride. And once Bob rode across the creek, it picked up its pace and really started swinging its arms. Before, it's kind of walking very stooped. Its arms are more or less down at its side, and it's walking rather leisurely. But as the men approached and, and were closer, her only line of retreat was around that debris and back up the creek bed, and uh, she really picked up her pace. You know, Bob commented that he was amazed at how such a big animal, and he talked about it being just muscular and large and thick-bodied, and how... Um, rapidly it was receding away in fact yeah. in fact you know when they when they were kind of uh, taking um, stock of, of what had happened they weren't even sure that Roger had got, actually got it on film or not because this all happened so you know just a matter of a minute and, uh, and so you get this iconic image and then he repositioned himself to get a parting shot as it uh, retreated further back and so you get this very informative complete rear view of, of this very broad torso, this uh, very cape-like trapezius coming up to a little cone head, you know, broad shoulders and, and a square torso. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you can sit, Whoa, you can sit yeah. and talk about this film. I mean, the, the analysis just opens up so many avenues of, of investigation. Uh, and especially after the stabilization of it. Yes. Oh, yeah. So I've undertaken a collaboration with a, a young graduate student at a technical university. He's a computer vision specialist. And um, together with his skills and with the um, archive that has been created by Bill Munns, who has a history in Hollywood as a costume, a creature effects, okay. special effects designer, fabricator of, of costumes, and with, with my support uh, by uh, locating funding for a, a collaborative project, we have assembled a large number of copies of the film and established essentially a genealogy of the generations of copies. But by acquiring and digitizing these copies, we have this real um, amazing data set. And so, in, in, to make a long story short, remarkably good alignment of the individual frames which makes the nullification very precise and accurate and renders an image that's much closer to the original than ever before and then he did a remarkable job of stabilizing that i mean just really clear stabilization yeah and it's stunning now there weren't any real aha moments but what it did do for me is all of the things, you know, e even some of the very subtle things, which to my eye were obvious, as John says, I'm an anatomist, I'm attuned to those, to, to what is there. Mm -hmm. And so I can see things, and, and sometimes I might even be guilty of inferring the presence of certain anatomical features that are suggested by a more ambiguous image. Yeah. 
But now this high resolution image and grain nullified image, boom, there it is. So it's not a surprise, but it's a confirmation of, of some of those anatomical details. Okay. And so again, we, we, for a documentary, we went right down through the film and we, we, know, we just picked out some of the most impressive details that were confirmed by this process even more dramatically from you know starting at the head and working our way down. We're talking about the... Explain that so people yeah, listening know right, dorsiflexion. Right, dorsiflexion. So toes can uh, flex and extend if they extend past 180 degrees, essentially, we call that dorsiflexion. So if your toes are pointing skyward, essentially, that's dorsiflexion. Well, when, when we walk, we, we barely uh, clear our toes. We, we use just the minimal amount of muscle exertion in order to keep from dragging our toes on the ground. Okay. That's, you know, if you're walking down the sidewalk and a section of sidewalk is just a quarter of an inch off because of frost thrust or something you know you clip the edge of the sidewalk i do that all the time we we were watching it here at the at at the expo where they had taped one of the extension cords down and it's completely covered with tape but people were constantly tripping over Uh it you know and so um were you guys collecting data (laughs) (laughs) should have been but uh but it just it just uh, uh confirms that fact and so um, in the wild, uh, bipeds, it seems, like, like Sasquatch, they tend to lift their feet much higher. But still, and also the fact that their feet are relatively long compared to their limb length, uh-huh. they, they tend to lift higher. And in fact, they actually angle the foot out just a little bit. But as the foot is swinging forward, the toes dorsiflex to, to help with that clearance. And so they're pointing kind of skyward as the the foot plants. Now, one of the things that's really interesting about this too is when you look at the sole of the foot and as it's reflected in the footprint casts, the sole pad of some of these Sasquatch uh, extends considerably up under the toes. Not unusual, there's a variation in humans and some, some individuals have a sole pad that goes up almost to that first joint between the proximal and middle phalanges of the toes. And so when the toes especially are a little bit curved, they look like kind of peas in a pod, just little short stubby toes. And so some have interpreted that as being an adaptation of Sasquatch, that they have short toes to resist bending stresses when they're walking because of their massive weight. Dr. Grover Krantz was of that opinion. But I had come upon lots of evidence suggesting the contrary, that no, that actually they avoid those bending stresses on the toes by maintaining a much more flexible instep that allows for the push-off to be concentrated under the entire forefoot. And the toes are mostly there for traction, not for propulsion, for pushing off. Mm-hmm. And, and are therefore, uh, since they're spared those bending stresses, they're relatively longer than human toes are. They're kind of intermediate between humans and, you know, much more like an, an early Australopithecine, kind of intermediate between humans and chimps. Okay. Well, um, when I did a reconstruction of the foot of Patty, of the film subject, based on the footprints, there was a very decided flexion crease that, uh, that popped up every now and again. And, and that flexion crease indicates the position of the knuckles. We'd call them in our hand, but we'll, we'll apply that to the joint at the, what we call the metatarsal phalangeal joint of, of okay. the toes, the base of the toes. 
when you look at the position of that flexion crease, the toes are really quite long. So I was proposing that, that in fact, the skeletal reconstruction, the inferred skeletal reconstruction, indicated rather long um, uh, prehensile toes. Well, when you see this frame, a series of frames where the toes dorsiflex, boom, the toes are long and they are exactly the proportions that I had inferred based on the anatomy seen on the sole of the foot. I mean, it's a remarkable correlation. So to have that image, that little series of images of frames clarified through this process of grain nullification and, and superimposition, mm -hmm. just really reinforced um, that, that uh, inference in, in, in a very, uh, very uh, conclusive way, in my opinion, anyway. It's Whoa. amazing. I mean, yeah, that's, yeah, that's wild. Yeah. Um, okay. I want to switch gears a little bit and ask you a question, John. So since this is Dear Lander, I am so interested to know your opinion on Bigfoot. Um, maybe potentially if you'd be open to like discussing personal encounters and things that you've encountered in the Wind River Range in our in our backyard with Bigfoot. Mm -hmm. uh, sure. Uh, I suppose I should start where uh, <clears throat> I first got interested in this. I, I, I'd read some stuff in college, and even in high school I read Ivan Sanderson's book, um, I think my junior year of high school, um, Abominable Snowman. <laughs> and I didn't reject it or become particularly interested in it. I thought it was an interesting book <laughs> written by somebody who had a story, story to tell. And then the Argosy Magazine article came out while I was in college in 67 about the Patterson-Gimlin film. And that went around the dormitory. I had to spend six months in the dormitory, which I hated in college. <laughs> but it gave me exposure to all these other students. And that magazine made the circle through our dormitory. We were all science majors of some one field or another. I was in marine biology. Yeah. But um, it, everybody was fascinated with it, and we talked about it a lot. What if this is real? And then that was over. We never spoke about it again. And it was in the back of my mind, but not as something I believed in, mm -hmm. but something I had been exposed to and thought was. So then I was doing a bighorn sheep study for, uh, it was a cooperative study for three agencies the uh, Wyoming Game and Fish Department, the Bureau of Land Management, and the U.S. Forest Service. The one person I talked to the most was the forest ranger here. In, he was Doc Smith, who was the Lander District Ranger. Mm, okay. And we were on that district, and I was doing habitat surveys for them. I had gone through a lot of training with the Forest Service in identifying uh, habitat types that the bighorn sheep would wander into and what parts of the habitat they were using. That was my job, to identify behavior and habitat of these sheep. Uh, bighorn sheep that had been introduced to this area in the Little Proposure River. So I was camped there and one time I got a tent out of the Forest Service warehouse to use for my next stint. It was usually two weeks in the mountains, ten days in the mountains, depending on what was going on. How, because if the sheep migrated, I'd have to follow them. And sometimes they're longer than ten days. But I'd stay there without coming out and pretty much spend all of the daylight hours with the sheep and sometimes on full moon nights and bright moonlit nights I'd be up at night a lot watching them 
to see what behaviors they had. And this tent I got out of the warehouse, uh, I was advised not to take it by the assistant ranger because he said uh, he had spilt bacon grease on the side of it and I was going to be bear bait with that tent. <laughs> and it was the only tent left, of course. I see. So uh -huh. I took it. It was a six foot high nylon tent and I was prepared for a bear. If a bear showed up, I kept a little jar of finely ground cayenne pepper in a Tupperware plastic jar that I could throw in the bear's face. <laughs> uh, this was before pepper spray. Yeah. And I had a 357 Magnum handgun. Cool, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, <clears throat> sleeping one night in that tent, um, almost a full moon, I can't remember if it was waxing or waning, but it was nearly a full moon, there was no wind. Uh, I was in a, on the edge of a forested uh, pine grove up high on the Little Proposure River, above the river up high, but in that drainage. And no trees to the east, so that the moonlight was coming right onto the um, east side of the tent with no trees in the way for shadows. And this, I hear this breathing sound and it's the sound of an animal coming close and it came by the tent. I could see the shadow, it was probably three feet, three and a half feet high, perfect for a bear silhouette. And the side of the tent by the bacon grease stain that was very visible, uh, was right by my right shoulder. And <coughs> this, what I know is a bear. How large is this tent? Oh, it uh, was fairly large for a backpacking tent. It was larger than you would normally backpack with. Okay. So it was uh, about eight feet long by about six feet wide by six and a half feet high. Okay. I know that because I was 6'2 at that time in height, and I could stand up in it and still have a little extra room on top. Okay. Uh, it was an A-frame tent, aluminum poles. And, crossed in the front and in the back. So uh, what I thought was a bear put its nose against the bacon stain, at least that's what I was getting from the silhouette, as much of the silhouette as I could see. Uh -huh. It was probably sticking its nose against the bacon grease and that was what I expected after I knew I had an animal there. So I had the cayenne pepper in one hand and my 357 Magnum in the other hand and it poked its nose in and I put the gun down on my chest and when it started aggressively pushing its nose in on that stain I hit it and yelled really loud and it backed off and I hit it in what I thought was a nose because it was soft but it ran behind this thicket of dog ear pine that was um, short very close together pine trees you could not walk through it you could not see through it in the daylight but whatever this was went around it and behind it and stayed there and I could hear it breathing. It was kind of like snoring sounds, a deep uh, rumbling uh, sound you'd expect from somebody snoring, except it was also like a cat purring in that the snoring was going on and the exhale and the inhale and it had an extremely slow breathing rate, like four breaths a minute. Okay. Very slow. So I thought, uh, that's my first question mark, why is a bear breathing this slow? Yeah. <clears throat> it came back in about 20 minutes or so, you could hear it approaching by the breathing. And so 
at its furthest point, it's probably 25 feet away. And then at closest point, it was two feet from my ear on the other side of the nylon tent. <laughs> so it did the same thing. Poked its nose in, I hit it, made a loud noise, and it ran back behind the dog hair pine. And the third time it came out, the third time it was no longer three and a half feet high quadruped uh, silhouette. It was something walking on two legs, and its shadow was above the tent. And the moon is just coming up, so I'm uh -huh. horizontal lighting from the east. And so I could see all of this. I didn't even see the hair moving on the silhouette of this body. And um, <clears throat> it's over the top of the tent, so I'm thinking, this is a bear. It's standing up on two legs, which bears can do. But it's also walking on its two hind legs, which black bears don't generally do. Yeah. We didn't have very many grizzly sightings in North American brown bears, which is our grizzly, generally don't walk on their hind legs. European uh, brown bears do. But I was confused. It was standing up and moving and walking alongside of the tent. And there's another indentation on the side of the tent. So I felt compelled to hit it again. Uh, but if it's a bear, the third time a bear comes back is bad news. I've heard too many outfitters. Sure. If they keep coming back, they're going to cause some trouble. So I had the gun in, on my chest ready to grab it. And I hit this indentation, which was a little above the bacon stain that third time. And this time I hit something hard as a rock. And it hurt my knuckles. It wasn't soft like a nose. And at that exact moment, the... The shadow appeared on the top of the tent, and I could see a hand with what looked like the shape of a human hand with an opposed thumb. But it was twice the size of my hand almost. Mm -hmm. Very thick fingers, hair between the fingers that I could see in this silhouette. Just had like a fraction of a second to see all of that wow. because it collapsed the tent down on my ankles. And then it, this is whatever this animal was. Uh, landed on my legs and then got up and ran off behind those trees again. And the tent was destroyed. The aluminum poles in the front had collapsed. Wow, so it really, like, when it pressed down, did it press down hard or was it just... Well, I think it thought it was a solid object and when I hit it, it wanted to wheel around and grab something while it did that. And okay. I didn't realize the tent was flimsy and it just went over on top of me. But it got up and walked off. And I could still hear it breathing, so I crawled out of the tent, and I had a fire pit there uh, that, that the fire had been out, but I rekindled the fire and uh -huh. had wood there, and I just faced the direction of the breathing, put my sleeping bag over my head for warmth, and decided I was going to watch and see what happened with the gun in my hand. And as you're sitting at the fire pit, could you hear it breathing, like oh, facing yeah. you? I could still hear it. Wow, but couldn't see anything because of how thick the trees were? Yeah, the trees were too thick to see through. And behind the trees was a big black shadow of, of the trees. So the moonlight wasn't doing me any good. I could see the trees perfectly fine because the, they were moonlit. So uh, in time, nothing happened. It was breathing at the same monotonous rate. I had had an extreme adrenaline surge prior to that. So I started to come down. And what happens after an extreme adrenaline surge followed by boredom <laughs> is you doze off. So I was dozing off listening to this breathing sound after maybe a half hour or so. Nothing was happening. It was a dead, still night. And I dozed off and woke up to the sound of something 
on the ground and I looked and didn't see anything and then within a few minutes I saw a pine cone fall out of the tree that was one branch over the top of my tent and um, so that kind of got my, my attention and then I saw another pine cone come down and they're all landing around me in the campfire all three of these pine cones and then I saw another one and realized it's not falling out of the tree and there's no wind and there's no squirrels it's throwing it at you and lobbed over from behind those pine trees and over a period of I don't know 45 minutes I don't remember that how long it was in time but uh, something like 20 pine cones were thrown at me <laughs> oh my gosh so now I'm in this dilemma of, if I'm calling it a bear bears don't throw things this is like uh, <laughs> this is some bear <laughs> so I, told, I came out of the mountains eventually and told this story to my boss who was Doc Smith and he was the ranger there and when, when I told him this story he had a little bit of a smile on his face but he got up from his desk and he went around to his office door and he closed it so the secretary wouldn't hear what we were talking about and he said so uh, you know while you were up there i've been getting reports in this office and the newspaper has been publishing reports of people seeing some big hairy primate running around in the mountains in your area is that in the lander journal or what yes it was in the Lander. really so you can go, if you can find those archives, you'll see these articles from various different people with different backgrounds saying they saw what some people were calling a Bigfoot. And he wanted to know what I thought of Bigfoot. And I said, well, I read Ivan Sanderson's book, and <laughs> I had read that article in Argosy Magazine. Yeah. But other than that, I don't know enough to have an opinion, and I'm not sure I believe in it. And he said, well, his best friend, who he went to school with, is a ranger in the Uinta National Forest currently in 1972. Mm -hmm. And he had seen one in broad daylight running across an open field in the mountains, and it got to a buck and pole fence and never lost its stride and just went right over the buck and pole fence. Mm -hmm. So traveling in a way a human could not travel. And it was a hairy bipedal primate of some sort. So he confessed to me, he said, I'm not going to say this publicly because it's a little too controversial, but uh, that I have to believe that there is some sort of primate we're calling Bigfoot running around. And he said, we have had 25 reports in the last few months. 25 in the last few months? <laughs> from the south end of the winds of this kind of a sighting. Uh, some of them were actual sightings, some they didn't really see. It could have been a bear, they saw something, it was dark, but they had things thrown at them. Uh -huh. And some of them had also heard screams in the night at the same time. So he said, uh, here's the problem. <clears throat> Your funding has just been cut because the regional forester decided that radio collars were in violation of the Wilderness Act. So you're essentially out of a job <laughs> for the time being. He told you this all in the same... Yes, all in the same <laughs> Oh, my goodness. In September. And he said, how would you like to take on a, a new uh, investigation instead of bighorn sheep? Track down these people. They left their names and phone numbers that had reported sightings and get their full story, write it down, go to those places, see if you find any physical evidence. And he said, we can't pay you to do this kind of investigation because the Forest Service 
look dimly upon funding uh, studies of animals that don't exist. <laughs> uh-huh. But he said, here's how we can do this. He had, as a ranger, uh, been told these stories simply because people thought the forest ranger ought to know. Uh-huh. And he's been getting documentation from the newspapers of other people that had reported it to the newspaper rather than to the Forest Service. And some had done both. Because we have all of these uh, names and phone numbers of people that had reported strange incidents. And we also have people calling the office here from all over the United States. Because when it hit the Lander Journal, it was interesting enough that UPI picked it up, United Press International. Okay. So it was every newspaper in the country was saying this little town in Wyoming has a Bigfoot creature running around scaring people. So he was getting phone calls and visits from people who had flown in to Wyoming with high-powered rifles to get the ultimate trophy. And they went to his office. He uh, is a, a public servant. Yeah. Asking where the latest sighting was. So he said the reason with the I could justify to kill one. Yeah, okay. intention to kill one and take it home the trophy. He said the way I can justify you going out and gathering information is if this is a guy in a monkey suit and he gets killed and I told the hunter where to go to shoot him, I'm involved in the legal case that comes up for murder. <laughs> so he was able to justify <clears throat> me going out and investigating these sightings. On the way. <laughs> So I went from bighorn sheep to big hairy primates in a matter of an hour <laughs> in this office. <laughs> okay, another thing that I have heard, and please, please correct me if I'm if I'm wrong. I I had heard that you had done work with bears, mm-hmm. and there was something regarding like a low emitting frequency that bears. I could be totally <coughs> off. No, no, this is connected with stuff that Jeff and I have been studying. Wonderful. Okay. Uh, I've heard like Bigfoot, similar thing. Well, we don't know. Okay. But what we do know is, I called Katie Payne to find out, this is much later in our relationship, in this um, investigation of Bigfoot, that uh, we'd heard about Katie Payne doing infrasound studies in Africa on elephants. And... I called her just to see because there's this anomalous um, reporting that goes on around Bigfoot sightings, which I got from many people that I interviewed personally that year in 72 and then in subsequent years, 73, uh, I did some of those 25 reports and actually found those people and interviewed them and sometimes they would say that they felt uh, disoriented. That's pretty well in the literature for other sightings where people feel disoriented or ill when they've had a close encounter with this uh, primate or uh, shortly before or after a sighting of a primate. Some of the possibilities were they were putting out pheromones that can cause this sort of thing. One animal will put out pheromones that causes another animal to leave the area. We don't know what insects feel, but you could see pheromones affect ants. Okay. Put out ant, you know, ant, one ant will follow another ant following the pheromone trail. But an ant from another colony hits that pheromone trail and it turns and goes away because it's not part of that colony. And it Interesting. Be in okay. So animals do that. Katie Payne, however, was saying <coughs> there's another factor that influences large animals that is 
large wildlife in Africa. And he was studying elephants at first, but later um, giraffes also uh, put out a, a low frequency sound, which is called infrasound. It's below the human audible range, mm -hmm. it's lower than 20 hertz usually, and it's 20 vibrations per second. And that can accomplish certain things, but there's a specific frequency for each animal that's recognized by other animals. For instance, the baby elephant that's freshly born will identify its mother by that infrasound and come to it when she generates a lot of that frequency. Oh, okay. Moves also thought to keep away predators. Okay. And for long distance communication through the ground because low frequencies can travel through solid material underground and miles away the elephants can hear that and know their own family's infrasounds and come together and meet at a water hole, say. So Kate Payne told me all this on the phone and I called her and I said, well, you know, we've got the Jeff Meldrum and I have been studying these animals. We find that this is reported. I had that experience when I went up with Dr. George Gill, who was an anthropologist at University of Wyoming at that time. And he was interested in this subject and came up in the mountains with me because there had been a fresh sighting reported by several people. We went up and found a sheep herder who had had his sheep, a couple of sheep stolen, and his horses were all spooked. So he was on foot looking for his horses when we ran into him up at um, uh, Grave Lake in the mountains. Yeah. Up here at the head of the South Fork of the Little Wind. Above the Cirque, kind of. Above the Cirque and off the reservation, just off the reservation. So he told us that the tracks were going off downstream along the South Fork and his tracks of what? And he said, of the old man, and he was a Basque sheep herder, and he said all the Basque sheep herders he knew referred to this large hairy primate as the old man. They had their Basque phrase for that. They, yeah. Yeah. Wow. The ones in Wyoming had that term for them. Wasn't, in this case, it was particularly because it was gray-haired, kind of grizzled? I don't know. Oh, you don't know. I okay. never did find okay. out okay. why they called it the old man. I see. I must but, have added that in my, my recollection. Well, maybe, but there, there are sightings of, you know, gray hair. Oh, sure. Yeah. You know, up yeah. here in these mountains. Some are black, reported as black. That could be because it's at night and they're dark colored. Mm -hmm. But often they're colored orange or reddish, uh, auburn, kind of a reddish tinge to the black hair and, and sometimes rarely white. But anyway, we followed it. George Gill, a friend of his who was also an anthropologist, he has a PhD in some science, and myself. And we saw the tracks where the sheep herder said they were. They said they'll, they'll go. He said they do this every summer. They steal sheep, domestic sheep. Okay. So he said it's not unusual. He said it's pain in the neck because we got to go find our horses. Horses are very spooked by the smell of these animals, he thought. So we went down the river, found the tracks, they were very fresh, the mud was falling into the center of the track from the edges, it was very fresh mud, it was walking in, and we could clearly see the track line along the river. And so we were following it as fast as we could, and then uh, a friend of George's started to complain, and he sat down on the side of the trail, and there was no trail, but on the side of this track line, mm -hmm. and said he was feeling ill. And he said he was disoriented. He kind of didn't know where he was for a while. And then I got sick where I felt like I was going to regurgitate. 
by lunch. And George stayed with us, and he wasn't especially affected by it, but <clears throat> he was taking care of us because we couldn't walk anymore. It came on all of a sudden to two of us, and really had no explanation for it. That was my own, only personal experience with this disorientation and ill effects of, of your physiology related to a, uh, a sighting, and it was the sighting of the sheep herder, not mine. Sure. But we were out of it for a good half hour or 40 minutes and then popped right out of it and we were both flying again. This is a common kind of story that Jeff and I have both heard many times from people who have had close encounters with either tracks or rock throwing or pine cones really? or sightings. And Katie Payne's idea was this is fairly classic for possibly an infrasound effect. Could be pheromones. She was open to the idea of pheromones or infrasound causing these kinds of reactions. But we actually, Jeff looked into it and found out what the equipment was that they were making at Cornell to monitor infrasound. And we actually got the equipment, microphone and right. computer. Didn't have much success with it. It was, uh, it was, <clears throat> you know, early generation equipment that was very. Uh, user unfriendly <laughs> you had to know a lot about the electronics and how to set the switches and so forth and basically what they provided us was a, a defunct early prototype and mm -hmm. that was actually used in the search for the ivory build woodpecker you know right, <laughs> but uh, and, and there was at that time there was no means to uh, easily review what you had recorded. If you recorded successfully, you essentially had to sit and listen to your recording in real time, which was very time intensive. Obviously, sure, right. now they have uh, you know filters you can run the recording through and and set parameters for things, you know, frequency uh, ranges that you're interested in. And should something happen in that range, it will then tag that uh, time. Uh, course, you know that time marking, and uh, so yeah, it was too did. new for our. our it study. was we, we were new kind technology of reaching yeah. beyond our expertise. But, <laughs> but what I can tell you is because yeah. you made the bear connection yeah. is that I spent three years on the interagency grizzly bear study. I worked with a couple of other field team leaders. We were field team leaders that we led our crews for doing habitat analysis and putting. We trapped and radio collared bears, and then we would use. Um, technology to follow them and find out what their seasonality for foods were. You know, they go to a certain area to eat ants exclusively. They go catch trout in a certain stream that they've learned as a cub, always at exactly the same date every year. Cubs learn that kind of thing and they're very tuned into timing. Yeah. Probably not calendar days as much as when certain smells occur from flowers. Okay. That's the clue. Run to this stream and we, you know, we were documenting bears running long distances to get to a stream where the trout were going to start spawning, right? Because they only catch trout that are spawning. <coughs> so they know these things. <coughs> so we were uh, doing these close observations with grizzly bears on a daily basis. And what we all noticed is those of us that were running the crews, we were out there more than anybody else. We had 14 people all together, but some of them were college students that left to go back to school in late summer. Uh, what we noticed, though, was there were times when we knew that there was a grizzly around watching us. We had that sense that it was there, 
and it's an eerie sort of feeling. It's, it's not uh, something we're afraid of, but like just below the stage where the hair in the back of your neck goes up. Interesting. Okay. And we all we all had that observation that we could feel when a bear was around watching us. And once we got radio collars on most of the bears we were working with, we could easily turn on the receiver and find that it was right there within visual range. Wow. But before we had radio collars on a lot of bears, we didn't really know if we, what that feeling was. Right. Radio collars really told us. So there's something going on that's uh, not registered as one of the five senses, I would say. Okay. That could be pheromones, could be infrasound, Sasquatches, and animals. The way it would be described in terms of uh, wildlife biology is animals that compete for the same food source usually have aversive mechanisms to keep okay. themselves apart. Could be a smell, could be their scent posts that have an odor. That, you know, you smell that scent post, you go the other way. Uh, sometimes males do that to keep other males away. But in the case of grizzlies, it seems like um, they produce a, a feeling of um, repulsion in humans. That's what we all thought. Okay. I don't know that this is written down anywhere, but they, their smell or their presence, whatever the energy is, could be pheromones that's you know, below the, uh, the uh, noticeable scent or infrasound low frequency that triggers something in those of us that were around the grizzlies a lot we knew when they were there and they probably knew when we were there but they were more tuned into the sense and could identify the species okay we had to use radio colors to figure out it was bears doing this sure Whoa. So anyway okay so that's a long way of answering that question about grizzly bears and or bears um having something to do with sound. Sure. But, um, That's so interesting. It's still to be researched. Katie Payne said somebody ought to be doing it. She suspected any animal over about 300 pounds in North America probably produces infrasound. Mm -hmm. That we should... Wow. And that and would include Sasquatch. She was open to the idea of Sasquatch. Mm. Mm, interesting. Yeah. Um, but she said nobody has ever studied infrasound in North America. So go for it. See, this is interesting. Uh, the, the anatomical correlation because at the suggestion that, that Sasquatch might be producing this, it uh, th there are anatomical structures in the great apes known as extralaryngeal air sacs. And these are kind of diverticulates, blind alleys that extend from the larynx, either above or below the, the, uh, the, the vocal cords. And uh, uh, they can extend quite far out into the body. Orangutans have the most well-developed, the most extensively developed, and they and they go, they have a, a kind of a, a double chin that is essentially uh, a, a subcutaneous extralaryngeal air sac. Yeah. And they go down under the, so it's almost like a, a, a bagpipe, you know, a bellows. Oh, wow. Okay. They're, they're modestly uh, developed in chimpanzees and are moderately and modestly in gorillas. Every once in a while, there's an atavistic expression of these in humans. Uh, so if Sasquatch is nested within that clade of great apes and humans somewhere, the chances are they also have these extralaryngeal air sacs. And if in fact, as an, if they are an Asian ape, 
um, and have the closest affinity to the orangutan, then you would expect they have quite well-developed one. Uh, there's even some suggestion on the Patterson-Gimlin film, you know, in its more resolved state, where you can see her chest, it almost looks like it inflates. And sure. so the one, the, the question is, is, is that a, an air sac? So uh, now what those, what purpose those serve is not fully understood, but one of the theories, one of the hypotheses that's been suggested is that they could be resonating chambers that help to amplify the uh, projection of, of infrasound generated from the, uh, the laryngeal apparatus from the vocal cords. Wow. And, uh, oh and especially, and you know, there, there is a correlation too with the well-developed status of the uh, sacs in the orangutans, which also produce extremely loud, long-distance calls, loud calls, we call them, uh, mm-hmm. that by which the males advertise their presence and, and essentially def- not defend, but, but at least uh, lay claim to a particular real estate, a territory, that they defend from other males and, and uh, thereby have access to the females that occupy that area as well when the, uh, when the females are receptive. So it's, it's not a stretch to think that Sasquatch could be using infrasound. Um, I interviewed or, or had a, a, a conversation with the author of a paper who, um, uh, in which uh, the author described an analysis of monkeys producing calls, territorial calls of varying frequency, and there was a high correlation between, first there was a high correlation between body mass and overall territory size, a a positive correlation. Increased body mass generally has larger body or uh, home range uh, area. And uh, also concomitant with that was a decrease an inverse relationship the greater the territory defended the lower the formant frequencies of their vocalizations now they weren't in the infrasonic range but i asked him this very question that these studies have not been conducted for the great apes uh-huh. and i and i asked this person with extensive experience with uh, with monkeys what he thought the possibility or the probability would be that uh, the great apes could produce infrasound he said oh I wouldn't be surprised at all. He said, I would expect it given their body size and their home range size. So it kind of goes back to what Katie Payne said, you know, over 300 pounds. Well, you pretty much take in your large male chimpanzees and certainly orangutans and gorillas. Uh And so um, they've got the the piping, the the plumbing, you could say. Sure. And uh, so this is, you know, it's inference, it's speculation, but the correlation, the... the, uh, you know, the, the analogies that can be drawn to known um, living great apes is, is there. So the possibility is very real. I think this brings me to my next question. In terms of, uh, this is so funny that I'm asking this question during the fire siren, the sound that, that a Bigfoot would make, or because um, I've also heard stories of people that have heard, heard sounds um, and have also like, obviously heard mountain lions or other other creatures that that let out like a really like a blood curdling screech and i've heard that it's like no comparison i wonder what do y'all have to say about about that and what what have you heard and what what is your data um where does that lead you for that well we don't have solid evidence but there were recordings made called sierra sounds 
that uh, were supposed to be from someone who had visual contact at the time the sounds were made. He's a newspaper man, if I remember right, mm -hmm. yeah. in California. And he had <clears throat> been taken to a spot where somebody said, they're coming in and eating bait that we're leaving for, bananas and things like that. They were leaving on it. So you could actually see them. And they started making vocalizations. But there were also these loud screams that uh, were different than vocalizations that sounded like they could be a language. Mm -hmm. There was these loud screams that might have been more like a territorial uh, location for others. And uh, they were recorded, so they're the Sasquatch scream. There's also a lot of them that are very questionable, probably not a Sasquatch, and probably other things, in fact, in some fakes. But, um, some of these screams we've used uh, trying to lure in others or get a response. And Jeff and I heard those um, in the South San Juan wilderness when we mm -hmm. fixed that. Heard those sounds, they were pretty convincing. They were loud and, and around an area that we'd put some orangutan um, vaginal swabbings out. Urine, urine. Uh, oh, was yeah, urine collected over. Uh, over the orangutan cycle. A lot of those kinds of reports of those screams in the wind rivers. So getting it back to home here, uh, there's quite a few people I've interviewed that say five or six that I consider to be very credible hunters mm. who hunt in this one area out of town, uh, not too far out of town, I don't want to tell you where it is, but it's a place where they're there are not a lot of paved roads. There are roads all around it, but none that actually penetrate into the interior. This vast forested area with lots of um, riparian vegetation. It's fairly wet in there. Okay. But it's a, a, a great area to hunt elk in. And during the elk hunting season is when all of these screams and wood knockings and other sounds occur that are kind of mysterious. Mm -hmm. They could be mountain lions. I've heard mountain lions in the wild. I've spent most of my life in the backcountry and a lot of it in the Wind Rivers, most of it in the Wind River range. Mm. I've heard mountain lions scream, but this is different, <coughs> very loud. And I think this one area I'm talking about where a lot of that occurs, including people having rocks thrown at them as they're silently walking through the woods looking for an elk, as an, an unusual sort of thing to have numerous rocks thrown at you while you're walking. Right. And nobody ever comes out and identifies themselves as throwing those rocks. And this has happened uh, over the stretch of, of many decades, years, no? Like, decades, Okay. Yes. In this one area I'm talking about, I think what what's probably going on there is it's a very good area to find elk. It's a good area to hunt elk, but when you do shoot the elk, you gut it out, you leave the gut pile there, and you get somebody with horses to come by, or your own horses that you've got tied up somewhere, and you haul out the meat. And what's left behind is a tremendous protein source of the guts, some of the internal organs, maybe the rib cage, and the whole body of the uh, elk. Mm -hmm. Several hundred pounds of really good protein, fat, and fresh meat. It would be a place where you'd expect to find bears, which you do. Sure. Then you would expect to find another omnivore if it's for Sasquatch we're talking about. is an omnivore that's storing up um, bulk for the winter. 
and hanging out at the right time where the carcass, where they know that the carcass is going to be. They're not stupid. They're probably as tuned in as the bears were to know that when they smell a certain flower blooming, it's time to run to where the fish are spawning. Sure. It's that kind <laughs> of intelligence mm -hmm. that puts them in the right place at the right time. And that's what I think is going on in, in several places during elk hunting seasons. But, but there's, you know, one right around Lander that I'm more familiar with because so many sightings come in after the hunting season starts, not before. But wow. right after the hunting season starts, we yeah. start reporting Bigfoot sightings and screams and rock throwing. And you know your question about the volume, the the uh, tremendous you know distinction between uh, a, an alleged Sasquatch scream and say a cougar scream. If you if you're familiar again by drawing analogy to what we know about the known great apes, uh, if you're familiar with the raucous scream of a uh, you know a chimpanzee, an enraged chimpanzee. Or the <clears throat> the loud call that I mentioned earlier of, of the orangutan, amplify that by the increase in size that we're talking about. I mean, it's all about the you know the volume that's able to be produced, and it's all about the both a combination of the the um, the lung capacity, as well as then any uh, enhancements that are are present, like uh, like these extra laryngeal air sacs. Um, if you've ever heard a howler monkey, howler monkeys get pretty big. I mean, they're, they're, they're a, a, an imposing monkey, but they have the most raucous call, mm -hmm. which is accomplished with the aid of an inflated hyoid bone that creates this resonating chamber. So they can project through that uh, you know, amplifier, that natural amplifier, and produce a really impressive vocalization, even for their size. So... You know, this uh, extra laryngeal air sac may, uh, as I said, either either serve as a, uh, a reservoir for sustained vocalization. If, it's, if the, if the uh, diverticula is below the vocal cords, then even in addition to the lung capacity, you have these reservoirs of air, which, you know, and you'll actually see orangutans sometimes cross their arms and press on their chest. They're pressing on those air sacs mm. to sustain that flow of air across the vocal cords. You know, if, if, it's be, if it's above, it can't... Well, I, I shouldn't say that. I was going to say if it's above, then it's not going to, it's not going to influence the uh, uh, vocalizations that are produced by the vocal cords. But, but the pharynx is also capable of modulation and producing um, uh, sounds. The, uh, there's this whole interesting uh, phenomenon of throat singing in human mm -hmm. populations. And that's accomplished with uh, training to uh, uh, be able to modulate the shape and, and uh, constrict and so forth, the pharynx above the vocal cords, the, the back of the throat, not the larynx. And that's how they're able to generate these, um, these undertones, undertones or overtones, I'm not sure which, are, but um, of, of, uh, which sometimes have some infrasonic qualities as well. But sure. when we make these kinds of uh, inferential predictions mm -hmm. it's based on bracketing the possibilities and, and that may be too limiting but but in, but it's reasonable i think uh, to, to bracket the possibilities with the uh, behaviors and anatomies of the known great apes the clade in which sasquatch almost certainly resides you know where exactly it's not clear but there's so much commonality between us i mean in, in terms of, of much of our anatomy between us and the great apes mm -hmm. um, that I think that's a reasonable 
uh, assumption. And when, and when you see other correlations that seem to confirm those kinds of inferences, um, I think I think it's a worthwhile mental exercise to try to sift through the possibilities and look for consistencies and inconsistencies. You know that may uh, point. Uh, uh, to confirmation or to rejection of of, uh, of an hypothesis. So sure, yeah. And along those lines, in my field, I've spent over thirty years doing habitat work with large animals in the Wind Rivers, mostly in the Yellowstone. Add to that idea, <coughs> this idea that. Um, where an animal goes to find food is something that's predictable. You don't know exactly where on the map, but you know what habitat's going to be at a certain time of the year where certain species show up because yeah. they have to eat every day. And they're going to go to a place where at that time of year the prime foods are in their memory bank, in their species memory. Of, uh, you know, a certain species of plant is usually going to be the dominant focus of their search for food. And elk don't necessarily go to the same place every year, but they go to the same species of plants at certain times of the year for that seasonality of occurrence. And that's, if, if Sasquatch was a real animal, it should follow that kind of a pattern. Mm-hmm. Where at a certain time of year you're going to see it show up in a certain type of habitat type, and within that habitat type a certain um, type of food that's available at that time of year and that's what we're seeing with these sightings that we have mm-hmm. and we've accumulated a lot of sightings Jeff more than I have but in this area the sightings show up in predictable places like a place where there's a lot of elk gut piles after the elk season starts <laughs> sure that's one easy to see and easy to uh, document sort of habitat Hmm. Availability that turns up only at that time of year. Yeah. But there's other things too. Mm-hmm. There's fish, roots that can be dug up. There's insects. Bears are mostly, grizzly bears in particular, are mostly insectivores. I know, don't bears go crazy on like moths as soon as they come out of moths, hibernation? Yes, and they go crazy over maggots. Hmm. One thing we learned on the grizzly study is, you know, you think of a grizzly bear being a powerful animal that can take down an elk, and they do in the spring of the year especially, they'll take down an elk, and, but they'll guard it for weeks and sometimes drag it into an open area where the sunlight can warm it up and melt the snow, and then they're guarding it because they're farming maggots. No way! Wow! They will guard it for a week or two, and when it's heavily infested with maggots, they come down and lick the maggots off the carcass. Wow. Prevent other animals from coming in and doing that. That's so interesting. I had no idea. <laughs> One of the observations that, that came out of the grizzly, or the uh, interagency grizzly bear study that I was on, but the Craighead said the Craighead brothers were studying grizzlies in Yellowstone and mentioned that that might be an important food source is the maggots on dead meat. Hmm. Not necessarily the red meat itself, but the dead meat <laughs> trapping insects. Because mm-hmm. insects are very, very good protein source with a lot of fat. Yeah, it's a lot of lipids in Wow. Um, this has been just just as great as I as I knew it would be. Again, like I'm so excited that by happenstance I met you and then, you know, met you, John, and it's just uh, wow. If there's anything uh, you'd like to leave us, leave our listeners with, um, like a, a last statement or yeah, whatever. Um, 
no, it was fun for me. It's all it's always a uh, interesting to to hear the story one more time. You always pick up a little more detail, a little more insight into the circumstances, and so the on. detail so, was yeah, oh man, it's great. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, the research goes on. Jeff and I are going to continue to follow up on sightings that they're credible and try to get more data whenever Definitely. we can in this region. Mm-hmm. In fact, Jeff has been all over the world looking for these things. So he's been to China and looked at their urine and compared it to our Sasquatch wow. with experts over there. Some interesting opportunities, yeah. Very cool. Last thing I want to leave our, our listeners with, uh, John, I hear you play a mean piano at the, at the Atlantic City <laughs> Saloon. Man, I hear you are... You were awesome with it. <laughs> uh, well, I played with a band called the Buffalo Chips for uh, about 35 years over there. Mm. Atlantic City Mercantile, and we had more fun than we probably should have. <laughs> <laughs> Did you get your squeeze box out of her? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, this is Jordan. This is Deerlander. We'll talk to you guys later. <laughs>